Jesus and Beelzebub. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd were amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul and the prince of demons, he has driven out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided itself against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul, but if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The sign of Jonah. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Great. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Um, I thought we would start with a few riddles this morning, just to see if you're awake, get your mind going on this Sunday morning. So, first one for you. What word starts with E, ends with E, and has one letter in it? Anyone? Yes, envelope. 
Next one. Um, we've only got a few of these. We'll, 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 we'll get, get going. Right. What can you find once in a lifetime, twice in a moment, but never in 100 years? Yes, well done, the letter M. Okay, last one. When things go wrong, what can you always count on? I'm not playing with you again, Helen. Yes, your fingers. Okay, so, great. Just a bit of fun this morning. Um, why, 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 why do we do that? Um, well, in our passage this morning... Some of the things that Jesus was saying can sound like riddles to us. There's just these odd sayings that we read and we wonder sometimes why people find it hard to read the Bible <laughs> because of, of passages like we've had this morning. They're just some odd sayings. But as always, there's more going on with Jesus. But before we kind of launch into it, let's just remind ourselves where we're up to. Okay, so we're in the middle of Luke's gospel, the second part, and we're on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus. If you remember um, that key verse last week where it says that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, or in some translations it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Luke is portraying following Jesus as a journey. We're on this road together. And as he is on this road, he meets lots of different people, if you read through the whole of Luke's gospel. Um, and he meets people that are blind, um, he meets Samaritans, he famously meets Zacchaeus, we all know the story of Zacchaeus. They're all social outsiders of Jesus' day. And they meet him, and, then, and they're changed. Their lives are changed, they're transformed by meeting Jesus. But he also meets another group of people on the road, and they're not happy with him. And it's one of these encounters that we're looking at this morning, and we're actually going to look at a few of these um, encounters in the lead-up to Easter. So, where are we today? Luke 11. Kath just read it to us. As I said earlier, lots of sayings and things that maybe don't, don't quite understand at first reading, you know, spirits and haunted houses and Jonah comes up and then the queen of the south. I mean, who's that? Like, what is going on? So, if you have a Bible on your phone or you want to grab one of the church ones, I would recommend it just because we're going to be looking through it as we go. Um, and hopefully breaking this down a bit for you and just getting our heads around, like, what, what is going on here? Okay, so... We start at the beginning, verses 14 to 16. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had, who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, and that's just another word for Satan, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. So what we have, we have a miracle and two objections. Did you see that? Verse 15, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And the second is others tested him by asking for a sign. 
So this is the premise of our whole time together and this whole passage is these two objections or accusations that are, are thrown at Jesus. The first is about what he's doing. And the second is about who he must be. Now, each of these are going to be answered in our passage as we go through. But first off, let me ask you, who, who is Jesus talking to in this passage? Who's he talking to? You don't have to answer, don't worry. Well, there are a few clues for us in this chapter. It says in verse 19, by whom do your, your followers drive them out? Who had followers in Jesus' day? It was the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And it even says later in the chapter, we didn't actually read it, but in verse 37 it says that after he's finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to his house. So he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day. Or to put another way, he's speaking to God's people, God's covenant people. These are Israelites, they're, they're God's people. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided by, against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. So straight away, Jesus is describing the error of their argument. Their, fa- their argument fails because if Jesus was demon-possessed, why would he be driving out the very demons he's possessed by? It falls down. Verse 19, Now I drive out demons by Beelzebul. By whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this phrase, the kingdom of God, is just another way of saying the spirit of God. And in all likelihood, Jesus is just referencing a passage from Exodus where during the plagues, the Pharaoh's magicians acknowledge that they cannot compete with Moses because the spirit of God is working through him. So Jesus' mission, it's in lots of ways, it's a new exodus. But it's a spiritual victory, not a, not a political one. You know, they've just seen a miracle. They've seen the Spirit of God at work. A mute man speaks. And in Matthew's Gospel, it says he's blind and mute. How amazing. They've just seen a miracle. But sadly, the irony is that Jesus communicates the reality that they are in fact mute to. Jesus goes on talking about strong men. When a strong man fully armed guards his house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me, scatters. So Jesus is speaking in a parable here. Satan is the strong man and Jesus is the stronger one. He's stronger than Satan. It's an announcement of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the savior. In him, 
they find the sign that proves who he is and what he's doing. But it's not what they expected from the Messiah. Because as we said, it's a spiritual victory. And he goes on. Verse 24. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Okay, so this is a bit strange, I'll grant you. The spirit goes out of a house, and then the person is the metaphor of a house, and then it's empty, and then it's clean because evil has left, and then the spirit can't find anywhere, and he comes back, and he's like, oh, this is better when I left. I'll just grab a bunch of friends and come back. And so it's this odd little story of, of demons and houses. And, but what is Jesus actually talking about? He's actually talking about who here. He's talking, again, to the religious leaders. And Matthew's account in his gospel tells this same story. And he includes the line, this is how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus is telling a parable here. He's not giving a lecture about exorcisms or haunted houses. He's telling a parable. He's using an idea that clearly seemed to be popular and understood by his audience. That when somebody is freed from spiritual evil by Jesus, that's a genuine improvement in their life. But if the house, the person's life, remains unoccupied, then it's vulnerable to evil returning and having even more of a destructive influence and even more devastating consequences. Now, if you or I were to make this same point in a parable today, we'd say something much would say something much different because we live in a different time and we live in a different culture. So hopefully to help you, what, what came to mind for me was those battling addictions. Something that um, I saw with some of my clients when I used to work at Hope Housing and trying to get my clients into rehab or to a 12-step program. Some of you will, will be familiar with this that a true long-term recovery from a substance addiction isn't just about building up the willpower to say, no, I'm not going to drink alcohol anymore. Although, you know, that's involved and an important step. But to only say no to something without starting a whole new life with a whole new set of goals and a new community of people around you, without this positive focus in your life, it's like, don't think about the elephant in the room. Don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. And what do you think about? To say no to some evil, destructive behavior that has a hold on you, you have to say yes to something new. You have to fill your house with new occupants and with new life. You can't just try harder. And the same things can apply to us, can't they? That with maybe more subtle things that can take hold of us. 
like maybe our patterns of behavior or the language we use or what we watch on TV or who we spend our time with or how we manage our emotions. We can't just be less angry or less anxious. We need to fill our house with new life. And so Jesus is using this image of, of this whole situation that he's dealing with with the leaders of his day. Jesus is saying, I'm here confronting evil and bringing the rule and reign of God, and that's having a positive effect in Israel. So he's using this parable to critique this shallow reception of himself. And he's warning of the dangers of half-hearted repentance. That when people allow Jesus to have a, a positive effect on their lives, you know, it's like, he's Jesus and he's my friend and he helps me have a good day. There's this like superficial veneer of faith, of discipleship. But there isn't this wholehearted commitment to follow the real Jesus. And what you end up doing is following a Jesus of your own making. And Jesus guarantees that that Jesus will let you down. Because we're forming a Jesus who's like a genie. And he solves all my problems and I pray to him. And then all of a sudden you hit this point where like, Jesus isn't behaving. He's not doing what I thought he'd do. And then we can get bitter and frustrated. And then all that transforming power that Jesus could have in your life, you never even opened yourself to because we're never actually following the real Jesus. And so as he says, the final condition is worse than the first. Now these are strong words, really strong, I, I, I grant you. But I think in Lent in particular, when we're in a season of stripping things back of self-reflection. Sometimes it can be good to hear these things. And this verse leads to the last few verses, which are still, still quite intense, but also there's hopefully some encouragement for us here. So, the second objection. Who must Jesus be? If you remember from verse 16, others tested him, asking for a sign from heaven. So who's he talking to again? He's talking to the religious leaders. God's covenant people. They were testing him. We just need more proof. They just need another sign. But this isn't really about proof. They've already rejected him. We read earlier in Luke's gospel that they've shown already that they believe that he, he blasphemes God in chapter 5, verse 2. He dishonors their traditions, chapter 6, verse 2. They even, even label Jesus a drunk in chapter 7, 34. So is this really about them wanting a sign? No, no, it's not. And Jesus knows this. In verse 29, he says, As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Do you see that? Like, you won't get a sign, but actually you will. None will be given it but the sign. So you, they still get a sign, but it's the sign of Jonah. And it's easy for us at this point to step back 
with some distance between us and, and the Pharisees. And we can easily, at this point, put ourselves on the side of Jesus and look, look down at the Pharisees. But we're not, we're not strangers to this mindset. Bear with me. We, we might not be intent on murdering Jesus, but what are we talking about in this story? We're talking about God's covenant people who began to nurse this, this resentment against their own God. In this case, Jesus. You know, the Pharisees were among the Jewish groups that had an expectation of what the Messiah would be like, of what he came to do. And part of the Messiah coming for them, their expectation was it would be this big military victory, this big operation to liberate you know, the Jewish people from the Romans, from the pagans, you know, do another Moses and um, stomp on the bad guys and create this new, new kingdom in Jerusalem. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's saying he's the Messiah. He's bringing the rule and reign of God. And it's an upside-down value system. And Jesus says the highest value for him, living under the rule and reign of God, is healthy relationships. It's loving God. It's loving your neighbor. It's loving your enemies, which, does it, which means not stomping on them, not killing them. It actually means praying for them and seeking their good. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they hear this and they're just disillusioned with Jesus. Like, this is not the guy. He's not being the Messiah the way we think he should be the Messiah. And so this, this veneer goes up. Jesus isn't, isn't behaving the way that we want him to behave. And because of that, they demand just another sign to show us who you are. Friends, we're not strangers to this resistance against Jesus, are we? If we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, seasons in my life, and this will be the same for all of us. You know, I'm trying to follow Jesus, and the way that he works in my life is not the way I'd prefer him to. It's just not. Like, redundancy. What, what was that about? That, that wasn't fun at all. And we can think, like, I, I, don't, I don't like the way Jesus is behaving right now in my life, in my friend's life, or, or in my family's life. He doesn't solve my problems. And it's not a, a rebellious thing. It can be genuine, heartfelt, painful burdens that we carry, right? So there's someone with cancer, like a, a dear friend of mine who, who led me back to faith. And we're just praying, and we're praying, and we're praying. We're saying, God, would you cure them? You, you cured this guy, the mute. He spoke. And, and this friend dies at 38 years old. Or there's something in your life. Like, I don't want to be single forever. Or I want to have children. Or I want to find a job that fulfills me. Or I want this, this family member to, to, to find Christ. These are genuine concerns. And we have a vision that Jesus, or we can have a vision that Jesus' number one priority is to work in those situations the way that I want him to. 
and he doesn't. And it can begin to generate this resistance. So when we read this, we can easily put ourselves on the side of Jesus and look down at the Pharisees. But let's not get there too quickly. Let's examine our our own hearts. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 30, For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. What's he saying? You want a sign about who I am? These religious leaders, you really don't want one, actually. It isn't about proof. No, you don't get a sign. The only sign is the sign of Jonah. Jonah, one of the most bitter and stubborn prophets in the Bible, if you've ever read this whole story. He resists God at every attempt. He hates people that aren't like him. He hates non-Israelites. He'd rather um, die than do what God asks him to. And then he gives this five-word sermon. Everyone comes to God, and Jesus is still annoyed. And the, the, the story ends with him having a go at God for being so nice. But they repented at Jonah's preaching. But with Jesus' preaching, something greater is happening. These people don't want proof. They've, they've already rejected him. This is the upside-down kingdom of God. You see, they had made God in their image, and they had in mind that they thought the Messiah would be this military leader to trample the Romans. But Jesus isn't that. His focus is on Isaiah 53, the suffering servant where the king of kings dies for you and for me. And that's how he'll establish his kingdom. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. You see, Jesus remains faithful even when his people remain faithless. Now one greater than Jonah is here. But he also mentions the queen of the south in verse 31. What's this? The queen of the south. Does anyone remember this? The queen of Sheba from 1 Kings chapter 10. It's a good one, this. It's the queen of ancient Ethiopia. And she hears about the wisdom of the God of Israel given to Solomon. She makes this long journey, gives Solomon all these gifts. So she's going to come and she's going to stand up and condemn these people that Jesus is speaking to, who reject him. Because she came from so far away just to listen, just to listen to Solomon. And someone greater than Solomon is here. See, Jesus picks two stories of non-Israelites who have just the, just the faintest, the smallest revelation of God through Jonah's five-word sermon or just hearing a report about the wisdom God, the God of Israel has given to this king. And they traveled long distances. And Jesus says, I don't need to condemn you for your wickedness. These people will do that because they're going to stand and say, You had a prophet greater than Jonah. You had a Messiah king far greater than Solomon, and you killed him. You're so wrapped up in your vision of how God should behave, you actually hated God when he finally came. 
and you killed him. I don't need to condemn you. Your actions do. So what about us? Everyone take a breath. Still with me? It's quite intense. Thanks for this passage, guys. Appreciate it. Um, (laughs) Where's the hope? Where's the hope? We're not going to end on a downer, guys. It's it's all quite intense. But two questions for you as you finish. Are you all impressed, by the way? I'm, I'm using a PowerPoint, trying to, as I talk. Multitasking does not come easy to me. So two questions as we finish. Firstly, do we recognize what Jesus has done for us? And second, do we recognize who Jesus is really, fully? Because as we read this, Jesus seems to really believes that his life, his death, and his resurrection is a sign. He really believes this, a sign that's so powerful that even these non-Israelites are going to look at the Pharisees and be like, what were you thinking? You had the sign standing in front of you, and you wanted more? Here's the thing as we close. And I've been thinking about this all week. I've been sitting with this passage, and it's just been on my mind. And it comes down to this, I think, that Jesus is God's sign. You know, some of us, we get into places where we wish that Jesus would behave like we want him to. And he doesn't, and it ticks us off. And so we want Jesus to do this. We say, do this one thing and I'll really commit. Do this one thing. And what Jesus is exposing here is that I'm neglecting the sign that's already been given. That Jesus is God's sign. Jesus is God's sign. He set his face for Jerusalem. He's going to die for us because he loves us. You see, God in Jesus is so committed to binding himself to humanity, to broken, messed up, hard-hearted, selfish people. He's so committed to us that despite our faithlessness, he remains faithful. This utterly loving, other-centered, compassionate, merciful God. And he dies for us and for our sins and he's raised from the dead as an expression of God's love for us. And he offers us his life as a gift. You know, as we celebrate Easter in a few weeks. We're celebrating a real event in history. That God came to earth as a human in Jesus and committed himself to us. In that event, he exposed our real need as human beings, which is not this genie God who solves all my problems. It's a God who comes and addresses the heart of the human condition. 
As one commentator said, like, we live in a culture of death and we contribute to a culture of death. And the creator God comes among us and he takes that death into himself on our behalf because of his love and grace and he defeats it and he gives that life back to us as a gift. You see, Jesus, sorry to disappoint you, Jesus doesn't ever promise to solve all our problems. What he promises is that he'll be with us and that his presence with us is the presence of Jesus who's so committed to us that he died for us, he was raised for us, and he loves us. And whatever, what, whatever your life circumstances are, however life finds you this morning, and I know that's different for all of us, with things that we have going on. That doesn't alter the fact that Jesus has done what he's done for you and for me because he loves us. Jesus is God's sign to us all. He is faithful even when we are faithless. And so as we come to communion in a few minutes, another sign, another reminder, another sign that he loves us, that he's committed to us. Church family, let's bring our whole selves to Jesus. Hold nothing back. Trusting that he loves us and that he's for us. Let's pray. Loving God, thank you that we're your children. Lord, forgive us when we try to put you in a box or, or make you in our own image. Lord, help us to follow the real Jesus. And God, thank you, although some of the words in this passage are maybe hard for us to hear, Lord, thank you that ultimately you are committed to us, you love us, and you're for us. And we thank you, Lord, as we spend this time in Lent, maybe in self-reflection and looking forward to Easter Day. Lord, thank you for what you did for us. Thank you for who you are, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.